How can we as moms and moms-to-be who are more overwhelmed and worried than ever about our kids find natural, safe, effective, and real-life ways to nurture and cultivate amazing human beings? That is the question, and here are the answers. This is the Parent Coffee Talk, and I'm Dr. Roseanne. I'm Dr. Cleopatra. Let's get started. everyone. This is Dr. Cleopatra. I'm here with Dr. Roseanne and we have the incredible Dr. Alan Christensen with us today. Alan, we are so excited to have you here. Hey, I'm really glad to be with you both. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And let me, let me do you um, read your bio, which doesn't do you justice because you're not only is he an amazing professional, he's just a pretty spectacular human being. And he really is um, so kind and such a gentleman, but still a lot of fun. (laughs) And another one of our fun friends, we always have all these amazing fun friends on But Dr. Alan Christensen, we often call him Dr. C. He's a naturopathic physician and a New York Times bestselling author. He's got another book coming out soon, too. He's a health expert. He really is one of the top, as far as I'm concerned, one of the top experts in the world on thyroid health. Thyroid health is just such an issue that people don't know is such a big issue because it's the underlying condition between a lot behind a lot of health and physical and mental health issues. He's here to really talk to us about it. He's been featured on Dr. Oz and CNN and a bunch of other media outlets. And he really is able to, through his work, spread the message about healthy living. And his own story is pretty incredible of how he really turned to health. So welcome. And thank you for being, you know, who you are and really just such a wonderful expert and resource about all things health. But in the thyroid world in particular, you really are just such a badass, frankly, about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we, yeah. And just, you're just such a trailblazer and really helping so many people understand the significance of the physical side of health, but also mental health and how they're really connected. So thank you for being here. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosanna. <laughs> it's all true. I always say that Dr. C, which by the way, we're both called Dr. C by our <laughs> I love that. So the first time I heard someone call him, I thought they were talking to me. <laughs> I always say that Dr. C is one of the most elegant thinkers I have ever met. And I certainly have met a lot of elegant thinkers. So um, we're mm. we're so honored to have you here and to share the wealth of knowledge that you are with our mamas and with this community. Would you start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you really became focused on health in your own life? Yeah, that's the thing. I I realized really long what a big deal it was to be healthy or not. You know, I mentioned that I had uh, seizures, complications from cerebral palsy, and I was just a really clumsy kid and put on a lot of weight as an adolescent. And I understood what it was like to be in just chronic physical pain and feel social rejection and and just feel frustration about your body not working the way that you felt that it should. And it was uh, just information in books, lifestyle changes, lots of fits and starts, you know, lots of failed efforts. But eventually, through those things and through education, my life was changed. And early along, I realized that, yeah, your health is everything. You know, nothing else matters if that's not where you want it to be. Uh, information is the key to real lasting health. And then what you do with it, what you make of it is where where it all goes. That's so beautiful. 
And what's incredible to me, Dr. C, is that it's hard to believe that you ever struggled with your health because you are the picture of good health. You are the picture of energy and fitness and graceful, beautiful development. And so it's hard to imagine, but your difficult beginning has blessed a lot of people because your difficult beginning led you to be the the medical genius that you are today. So, and you know, let's talk about difficult beginnings because, you know, a lot of my moms, Dr. C or moms with special needs kids, I didn't even know you had cerebral palsy, you know, as a kid. And so sometimes you know this, but as, you know, a parent, you know, we're only as happy as our happiest child, right? And when you have children with neurodevelopmental issues or physical issues or whatever their issue is, they often feel very trapped that, you know, this is what is traditional. The same thing as an adult who is told, okay, you have this thyroid problem, this is what you have to do, or or you have this addiction and this is what you have to do, whatever your issue is. Or, do you have any advice for parents who or individuals who have been told they have something and they've been given traditional treatment and it's just not working. You know, I guess the big thing is uh, persistence and not giving up hope. In many cases, I think medical practitioners, they mean well. They want people not to have false hope or unrealistic expectations. And there's a valid strategy behind that. But at the same time, the body is so resilient, you know, and there's often so much more changes possible than you could ever imagine. So, you know, don't don't give up hope. At the same time, don't turn your back on what is available, even if it's not as much as you would like. But when you have the option to do more and encourage more, and a lot of that comes down to lifestyle. And with lifestyle, I've learned this with myself and with raising kids that it's a classic example of they'll do what you do, but they won't do what you tell them to do. True. <laughs> so you got to model it. <laughs> you do have to model it. Yeah. Lifestyle. We often recommend, and I know you believe this too, you know, food is where you start. You know, you do the best you can in your lifestyle and even little hacks really sort of add up for individuals who are starting to make lifestyle changes. What are your recommendations? Yeah. You know, a big thing is, uh, Thinking about quality of food as a starting place, thinking about some of your daily rhythms, uh, adequate sleep, high quality of sleep, movement, uh, social social connections, these big areas, and then some sense of deeper drives, deeper fulfillment, deeper goals. I think that those are like the core areas one starts with, and people can have different levels of competency in those. Someone might have their sleep dialed in. That's just not a factor for them. So it's knowing which of those might be the most strong point of need and then starting to address that in some way. Through also, whatever you can, how can you have a way to quantify, track, journal, document? You know, it's our habits are things that we're, we're not really that aware of. So some way to bring conscious awareness to those areas as, as a first step. I often recommend do this in our center in Ridgefield, Connecticut. We actually create an individual checklist for people to every two weeks or more frequent if they want to track specific things unique to them, you know, like 
I slept better. What does that mean? One hour better or whatever, just so that they can see their progress. Sometimes when change is gradual, you don't really notice it. And so, or you get to notice something that you didn't think was a big deal is actually a bigger deal. As some of those other areas left, you're like, wow, I actually have this pain in my leg. And and that was really getting in the way of my exercise. So I loved, I'm a data nerd. So I love... (laughs) I know. You're all three data nerds. Yeah, we're all three data nerds. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you're so wonderful at really kind of, you know, when people get a lot of data, they get blood work and whatnot. And I think one of the things that you could really help people out in is giving some psychoeducation about just in general thyroid testing. So what do thyroid problems look like and in traditional lab work, what should they look for? And then is there any other lab? And I know you have this you know, there's lots of, um, you're a wealth of resources about this and people should really go to your website and find out more information about this. Um, and we're not going to do it justice in talking about it, but just some basic information. Cause I think people don't really connect thyroid to mental or physical health. They really think, well, it's just your thyroid, you know, I'm taking some pill for that and it's going to be fine. You know, what do they need to look for? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So, so for sure, thyroid disease can be a big factor behind so many ongoing issues. Uh, you mentioned some top ones there: mood changes, unexplained fatigue, uh, weight struggles, menstrual irregularities, hair loss, digestive problems, chronic pain. Almost any symptom you can think of that there's not a clear explanation for could be influenced to some degree by thyroid function. The body has different ways in which the gland can go wrong. We can attack it. That can cause it to make too little hormone. In some cases, it can get the wrong signal, and that can cause it to make too much. But those are the main scenarios that happen. There's also changes that occur to its structure. Growths, goiters, thyroid cancer can happen. And in terms of measuring that and documenting that, most adults, most adult women, when they get screening tests, there will at least be some cursory look at thyroid function. And the most common thing done is the TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. And that's the pituitary signal to the thyroid. Now, the funny analogy is that the the thyroid is one of several glands. And you want to think about them as like lazy office workers. So if if there's not a manager like nagging on them, they're going to be like on Facebook or goofing off at the water cooler or whatever. So they only work when they're told. So the TSH is a manager nagging the thyroid. And if the thyroid is really lazy, it's getting chewed out all the time. And this number gets high. On the other hand, if this, if this gland is going so fast, if it's like shuffling papers onto the next desk so fast that no one else can keep up, then the manager is not going to be pushing the gland. It's going to say, hey, just build back off and leave it alone. So this is the most important, the most common single test, but it's backward. So a lazy gland gets yelled at, an overactive gland gets ignored. So yeah, high numbers mean that it's slowing down. And you talked about different ranges. So there's a normal range we get in labs. And it's funny because in many cases, that's really good data. In the case of thyroid disease, what's happened is that we check people the most when they've got thyroid problems. There's some screening of healthy people, but that's really quite rare compared to how many people that have thyroid disease that are getting checked a lot. So there's more people that get tested that have abnormal thyroid function than have normal thyroid function. And then you take all these results and you put them into a normal bell-shaped curve. And well, yeah, this is a good representation of these scores from people who had abnormal levels. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm wow, a I hadn't even really thought about it like that, Dr. C. 
that is pretty incredible to really realize that the representation is in a normative database. It's a clinical database of people that, you know, we're comparing because, you know, even I, you know, so many patients that have quote unquote normal TSH, but really don't have normal thyroid thyroid functioning, excuse me. And an important piece in this that, you know, maybe what we're comparing them to isn't really representative. There've been a lot of papers in which they've taken people that have no reason to have abnormal thyroid function. They've got, they should have their thyroids working well, and they've taken large numbers of people like that and then averaged their scores. So that's where we get data that we call the more optimal. In the normal range, that's definitely a problem. And I'll even see that to where someone has abnormal function. The doctor says, well, it's not too bad. Let's wait. Let's look at this later. No, that's significant. But then you can be in the normal range. And by and large, remember how high was low. We're in backwards. It's, it's opposite day for TSH testing. So if you're anywhere besides the lowest end of the normal range, that could be unusual. So yeah, so most labs say that 0.45 to 4.5 is the normal range. But if you're somewhere above two, that's usually suspicious of there being something off with your thyroid. So that's the easiest thing. In almost all cases, the TSH is tested. And if you're somewhere above two, that's something that should be sorted out a bit further. Now, do you recommend when somebody we really suspect are in like a high risk category for a thyroid problem, in my case in particular with my population, a lot of people with concussions. So they estimate that somewhere between 25 to 35% of people with concussions get a thyroid problem um, as a result. That's pretty well you know, known amongst people who work in concussions, but also we have a lot of infectious disease folks and the thyroid will overwork and then go down. Do you recommend doing additional testing besides a TSH? Yeah, because I think this is sure. so important. To be thorough, it's good to look at the immune response as well. And this is kind of funny. We have uh, two thyroid antibodies that are commonly measured and a third one that can be measured. The first two are going to be the antithyroid peroxidase and antithyroid globulin. And we now know they actually don't cause thyroid disease. So you guys hear that thyroid antibodies do not cause thyroid disease. That's, that's bizarre, yeah. right? Yeah. So they're often present when there is an attack against the thyroid, but they're actually not the mechanisms that are causing the damage we now know. So I think about them as like smoke. You know, if there's if there's smoke, there's probably a fire, but there can be a fire without much smoke, right? And sometimes smoke is not that big of a deal. So that's how thyroid antibodies work. If they're not there, that doesn't mean that you don't have autoimmune thyroid disease. You can, you can have smoldering hot ember coals and no smoke and still damage being done. So yeah, so if they are there, they confirm that there's autoimmune disease, but people often think about that the opposite way by mistake. They think that if they're not there, there's no autoimmune disease. That's not how that one works. So okay. yeah, they're good to measure. We can also measure the, the, the hormones that the gland produces directly, the T4 and the T3. The free forms are more accurate. They're helpful. Honestly, they're lagging indicators. So the first thing your body does when there's too much or too little hormone is that it adjusts the TSH. And then all the things outside your thyroid do their best to juggle T3 and T4 to keep them where they should be. So they're not the first things to show disease, but they can be relevant. Uh, the one thing that I think has done the least, which is helpful, are thyroid ultrasound studies. Mm -hmm. So very often, I mentioned how you may not see the smoke there, but you can often see the signs of the damage by an ultrasound. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thought is that many with thyroid disease, they've got more risk for thyroid cancer. And that's a separate yes. thing that often is missed or underdiagnosed. So yeah, if someone has a good workup, they should get an exam and an ultrasound of their thyroid as well. So interesting. Yes, this is really important. So I want to ask you about the application of this to fertility and pregnancy specifically since yeah. of course, the, the area of my obsession and mm-hmm. a lot of my mamas who come to us with fertility challenges or they're worried about having fertility challenges when they decide to start going for a baby because they know that they have a thyroid issue. So can you talk a little bit about managing the thyroid for the purposes of fertility and pregnancy, what the ideal range for TSH is for, we, we think of that being somewhere between one and two, or that's, I should say, that's the conventional standard for fertility. So I'd love to hear your take on this. Yeah. So thyroid function is huge for its relevance and its role on fertility. The correlation is one that you often don't hear about, but the gland puts out two hormones. There's T4 and T3. This is the simplest thing. So think about like a car, right? So a car needs four tires, right? So your thyroid's a little factory making cars and each tire is an atom of iodine. It's that easy. So T4 is a car with four tires. <laughs> so you take off a tire, well, you got T3. You take off two tires, you got a motorcycle, well, that's T2. <laughs> <laughs> and so T4 and T3 come straight out of the thyroid, but your body also breaks them down into T2. And it turns out T2 is the big one that talks to the ovaries. Mm -hmm. And if it's not there in adequate amounts, they just do not respond to estrogen and progesterone properly. Mm -hmm. So it's really the T2. And that's a funny thing because many who are on thyroid treatment might be receiving T4 or T3, but if there's not enough T2 there, they may not have a full effect upon their fertility again. Mm -hmm. You brought up a great point. We talked briefly about normal levels. And in the conventional world, especially the fertility world, has known forever that the normal levels are just out the window when it comes to fertility. Yes. And you want to see the TSH not above two, uh, somewhere between, yeah, you could see one to two. A little lower than one is not harmful, like 0.5 to two is reasonable. The other thing that's important about this is the, the thyroid antibodies. Now, thyroid antibodies, I think they get far more attention than they deserve, but one way in which they are important, independent of everything else, is fertility. So if someone has very high levels of antithyroid peroxidase, even if their thyroid scores are perfect, and even if everything else about their health is dialed in, that may inhibit their fertility. So this is one case to where we do want to know where the antibodies are, and we do want to adjust them by themselves as well. But yeah, huge relationships between thyroid function and fertility. Absolutely. And then there's, of course, the issue that once we overcome the fertility challenge and you get pregnant, then the pregnancy is often associated with big changes in thyroid function. So making sure that you can manage your thyroid throughout your pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, that's an awesome point. So during pregnancy, you've got more hormones circulating in your body than you probably will at any other time. And there's a compound called thyroid binding globulin. Mm -hmm. And it's just like if your thyroid was a car, this is the parking brake. You know, this just like slows everything down. And it's related to how much estradiol is in circulation. And yeah, you've got a lot during pregnancy. So you've got a lot of thyroid binding globulin. Now your gland will work harder to compensate. Mm -hmm. The other thing going on is your iodine requirements are different during pregnancy. And that also changes the whole dynamic with your thyroid. But 
and, and then one other switch is your immune system is altered. So any autoimmune responses can change. So when you put all that together, three things happen to pregnant women. Uh, about 30, 40% of the time, they get a little more hypothyroid. So if they're on treatment, they need a bit more. About another 40 to 50% of the time, they may get hyperthyroid because of that heightened immune response. And the other cases, it all seems to level out more or less. But the upshot of it is, it's critical to keep it right all throughout pregnancy. So women that have any fluctuations are, are highly advised to check monthly and make just very gentle adjustments. I love that. I love the recommendation to check monthly so that you can be on top of it and making minor adjustments as you go. You mentioned iodine. And I know that there's a lot of controversy around iodine and thyroid function. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for us, Dr. Christensen? I sure can. So this is something that's really, really not intuitive. Let's go back to that that car and the car and the tires. So imagine we got the, the factory and the assembly line. You've got all the, all the gre- guys in greasy coveralls, and they're all slapping on tires on these frames as they go through, right? So the tires are the iodine, and they get a big delivery of tires every day. Well, if there's no tires, there's no complete cars coming out. So you need iodine for thyroid hormone. But what if rather than give the guys a nice stack, say they're going to make 10 cars, they need 40 tires for those cars. Rather than give those guys a nice, neat stack of 40 tires, what if you just like put a dump truck full of tires and like poured that right in the assembly line? <laughs> and then the guys can't, they're, they're tripping over the tires, they can't get to their tools. So that's the issue. You know, we need some iodine for the gland to work. All, all nutrients have what's called a therapeutic window to where there's an amount, a minimal amount you need below that there's problems and there's a maximal amount that's safe. And above that there's problems. Most every nutrient, that window is like a barn door. You know, you're probably not going to miss it if you're doing reasonable things. Right. Right. But iodine is insanely narrow. The window is so insanely narrow. So it's not a bad thing. It's not like a magically good thing. It's just something that you need in rather precise amounts. And it's very easy to get too much and some can get too little. And what about people who are not using iodized table salt? Are they really in in the standard? um, we, We all live in America. So the standard American diet, is there really risk of being low in iodine and needing to supplement if you're using sea salt, for example, or is it still really unlikely to need more? Well, the funny thing is we've got, we've got some subpopulations. So the country as a whole, the World Health Organization has defined that we are in what's called iodine level four. And mm-hmm. that's to where we're at risk for thyroid disease because of excess. Mm-hmm. Our average amounts are above a safe threshold. Mm-hmm. We get certain subpopulations per age, gender, ethnicity. And we see that there are many subpopulations that are at iodine level five to where they're just in overt danger where it's much, much worse. We've got a couple subpopulations that can get low. So pregnant vegans are an example of that. When you're pregnant, you need a little more. And somewhere around 16% of pregnant women may be below a healthy threshold. So they're, they're rather different. But general adults, we're, yeah, we're, we're not lacking. Our, our overall population is more prone to excess than deficiency. Mm-hmm. Did you say 16% or 60%? Yeah, thank you. One, one six. That's what one I thought. Okay, great. I just wanted to clarify. Thank you. And, you know, for people just like in general, not to go over every tip, 
because I want to be respectful of your time, is that what are some just general things, whether it's lifestyle or diet, that is good health overall, but obviously specifically for thyroid. If people do have a thyroid condition, how can they take charge of their health? You know, a good thing we mentioned about just just testing, screening, being aware. One of my favorite daily daily tricks is Brazil nuts. You know, adding in Brazil nuts on a regular basis. Yeah, they're they're really high in selenium. And I talked about how you got this iodine window, this range. If you're low in selenium, that window is even narrower. So having enough is helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, for quite a while, I was hesitant about recommending Brazil nuts because I've always known their selenium content very tremendously. And there have been cases in which supplements have been manufactured that had dangerous amounts of selenium made people very sick. So you can get too much of that. But there was a big study done in Brazil where Brazil nuts would come from. And they gave some preschool kids, I think it was irresponsible. I'm glad we have the data. But if I were on an ethics board, I would not have approved the study. Really but they gave these little malnourished preschool kids ridiculously massive amounts of Brazil nuts. It was like wow. a food of their diet for six weeks. And they got incredibly high amounts of selenium. The whole upshot of it was they were much healthier than their peers that were not given the supplemental Brazil nuts. Mm. And you can measure selenium in various ways. Some measures show your nutritional adequacy and some levels show toxicity and some levels show excretion. And these kids that were given whopping amounts, they were fine on nutritional adequacy. They were not toxic, but they were excreting the heck out of it. <laughs> so the kind of in Brazil nuts, your body can make use of and get rid of any extra. So yeah, every day. And yeah. I didn't know that it was excreted in that same way. That's awesome. How do you store your Brazil nuts? I free, I put them in the fridge. Sometimes I freeze them if I get, okay, thank you. Spot on. Yep. Okay. <laughs> we don't want them to go rancid. That's the whole point of it. So, um, buy yeah. them in a pound. You don't go through them all that fast. That's perfect. No. Yeah, yeah, pop them in your fridge to keep them safe. And if, if you really have, like, either you're afraid they're going to expire, I freeze mine too. Sometimes. Well, when you look deep in the studies on selenium, there are a lot of debates about which types absorb how well. And it seems that selenium in supplements has some benefits that's completely independent of dietary selenium. So dietary versions are good in some ways. And then a certain amount of supplementation is completely separate from that. But yeah, Brazil nuts are so easy just to make sure you're getting good amounts of it and you won't get too much which can happen from supplements, but it won't happen from Brazil nuts. So what do you recommend? Like less than five in a day, correct? Two, two to three, four. Two to four. Two to four. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And they're tasty. I've been eating them yeah. my whole life. Yeah, <laughs> I love them. They're great. Yeah. Um, and you never, you know, you can't serve kids too young on this stuff because then they develop, you know, that sense, that savory eater palate and but you can even do different things with them. You can roast them and put little other spices on them if you want. Cool. Most people like them just the way they are. We Hopefully, if they're able to eat nuts. That's fantastic. Well, you know, as we wrap up our time with you, how can people best reach you, find your website? I know you have this you know, book coming out really at later part in the year. Is that correct, Dr. C? The next one will be January. Yeah. Yeah. January. Oh, January. We but have to wait until January. Yeah. But you also have an awesome book already. Your last book that right, the metabolism reset diet, which I strongly recommend and always a, just filled with lots of ideas and things and a really beautiful program to help people walk through resetting their metabolism and regaining their health in a lot of areas. And so that's fantastic. So how can people best reach you, Dr. Sick? 
Yeah, the central hub of all my all my online stuff is Dr. Christensen, um, C H R I S T I A N S O N. Lots of ways to spell it, but most of them work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, okay. we'll post it so they have yeah. the right spelling. We'll post it. Absolutely. Well, you know, thank you for being with us. I actually really learned a lot. I always try mm. to learn about the thyroid. Yeah. Um, because I just feel like for me in mental health, it's just a very common issue in yeah. mental health. We always think everything is neurotransmitter in mental health and you know, I'm on this platform to say that's just not the case, that a lot of times there's a physical reason why your mental health isn't working. Mm-hmm. And an integrative practitioner, physician, a naturopath, this is, these are the people that you want to seek out. They look at how systems are connected and not just the symptom. Not that we should ignore symptoms, but we have to figure out why they're connected. So thank you so much for being here. You're just such a wealth and resource of information We're so glad to have you and we would love to have you back again to talk about stress more, to talk about the HPA axis, which is involved in our psychophysiological stress response, because I know that you are a wealth of information on that topic too. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Alan. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, fun to see you guys. Take good care of yourself. You too. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much, Alan. So good to have you with us. So interesting. I'm a thyroid expert and then Dr. C comes on and I'm clearly not. And then we get schooled. It's so true. I feel the same way. I mean, we are, I spend tons of time studying the latest findings on the thyroid because of fertility and pregnancy. And he always has the most cutting edge take and information. He and I can sit and talk for hours about the thyroid. We can sit and talk for hours about the adrenal gland. And I loved how he talked about it with mamas because having normal thyroid levels during pregnancy are really important for the development of the baby. It is linked to research to having cognitive decline if a mother doesn't have uh, appropriate thyroid level, yeah. and you can measure them. So you know, that's awesome. And I didn't know selenium and brazilnuts could be excreted. Yeah. I'm going to get off my selenium supplement and I'm going to go back to just having... You well, know, people- he did say that there are different benefits to the supplement and the, the nutrition, the diet. But I have it in my, whole, in my regular vitamin and then I take extra and anyway. So I'd rather take my extra through that, right? Yeah. That's so, awesome. And you know, we Brazil nuts are great for fertility as well. So I love the recommendation to have two to four Brazil nuts a day. And also I think the conversation surrounding iodine is really, really interesting and really good to know that especially for certain subpopulations, it is something to consider the possibility of being low in iodine, but that for most people in America and probably much of the developed world, the risk is more likely for being too high. Yeah. And I take an, I I have thyroid disease because when I was a teenager, I had Epstein-Barr and it attacked my thyroid. Which is very common. Very common infectious disease. Like I said, loves to go after, you know, the thyroid Lyme disease, loves to go after the thyroid. It can get it. These things can get into any organ. And for me, that's what it did. But my integrative physician has me take um, iodine and actually a product by Designs for Health called Iodine Synergy two to three times a week. So mm-hmm. I just, in my seven day pill, I toss it in and every other week. I do Monday, Wednesday, you Friday. Pulse, and I pulse do, it. Yeah. I pulse it. I 
in there and it's just in my giant vitamin container, you know, yes. all these things, including lots of antivirals and whatnot, but check with your provider. And, you know, I just think it's really interesting because I have so many people who get thyroid testing, both children and adults. We always, we don't really think of thyroid disease in children, but it is still possible. And the testing is so important. And he was able to really break that down. Mm -hmm. Um, Many people only get TSH. That's exactly right. That's always the first test that will be run. Yep. Yeah. And you can have, as you said, like as Dr. Kristen said, you, you can be within a range but it's not the right range for you because the big, the normative, what you're being compared against the normative database is so so important. And it just, it, it underscores how important it is to pay attention to the, the wisdom of your body and what your body's telling you. So if you have symptoms, even if your labs look like they're within the, the standard or normal range, we have to pay attention to the symptoms. And it's not that we're paying attention to the sy- symptoms for the sake of just treating the symptoms, but the symptoms are a clue about the underlying problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And, you know, the problem with thyroid, as Dr. Christensen said, that, you know, this the, the symptoms are broad. They are very broad. So broad and they can really overlap. And, you know, what I really said with people, when people come to me for so many different things, and I've said this before in Connecticut, probably like half the population that walks in my door has infectious disease, particularly yeah. Lyme disease, because, you know, Lyme, Connecticut is what it's named for, Lyme disease. Yeah. But ticks carry a lot of things. But think about, do you have a known medical condition that possibly could affect your thyroid? That often is a red flag. Like, okay, you have a concussion, you have a strong chance of a thyroid problem. You have um, Lyme disease, you have a strong chance. You just had a baby, your thyroid could be wonky. Exactly. Right? You're in perimenopause, your thyroid can get wonky. You have a family history. Yeah. I see people have thyroid problems all the time and they don't have a family history. We're just under a lot of adrenal stress and to our whole, you know, endocrine system starts getting overloaded, right? Absolutely. The adrenals are so closely tied to the thyroid as well, right? And the stress response system overall, which is, yeah, I would love to have Dr. Christensen back to talk about those relationships and those feedback loops. And my mamas in the primester protocol know about the very important feedback loops between our psychological states and our fertility that happen through these glands and through the systems like the HPA axis yeah. and our, our sympathetic nervous system. They know they learn all about this and how to address this in their day-to-day lives. So yeah. this is really, really important. I'm so glad that we covered this topic because thyroid disease is so prevalent and it's becoming more and more prevalent. And it is exceptionally prevalent in the populations with whom I work and And as well as mine. I have so many, we're dealing with women that are working really hard and stressed out and, you know, we can't go and run on empty. We think that we can, well, it shows up, right? It's show, and the pituitary gland, it, it's showing up there. And it's the place where so many of these other things are initiated 
um, having to do with the thyroid, having to do with the ovaries. And so I think that it's really interesting because, you know, I often wonder if if our, we have a finite amount of life force that we can give at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. When we're like, when we're, we're pushing and pushing ourselves and pouring our life force into other things that we're creating, does it take away life force from our ability to create our babies? To my knowledge, there's no such scientific study, but it is a question that I do find myself grappling with and observing the patterns that I observe uh, across yeah, hundreds of thousands. Deep question, Cleopatra. You know what it's, I mean? It's a pretty what? It's a pretty deep question. You know what I mean? But listen, you know, energy, you know, quantum physics and we all have energy beings and our energy interacts. And there's so much of an interplay between everything we do. Right. And that's why like people like Dr. C talks about lifestyle, adapt a healthier lifestyle overall. You know, there is a positive domino effect in every area, whether it's fertility or on your special needs child or your job. How about your husband, you know, your spouse, right? Your relationship. Yeah. Or your, your own self, your own self-love and um, self-worth and self-care. I mean, all of those yeah. things, right? Yeah. Right. Cause it all starts from within and what we think and believe about ourselves. Absolutely. And you know what, these lifestyle modifications that we make create not just this positive domino effect in our own lives and our own immediate circles, but also across generations. And we're passing down those benefits to our children and our grandchildren through epigenetic processes and the epigenome that they inherit from us. It is really the highest form of activism and service and love for our families and for ourselves to engage in these kinds of lifestyle modifications that will be life-giving and health-giving, both mental health and physical health and fertility and reproductive health. And so it's so, so important. I'm so glad we got to talk about this today. So good to be with you as always, girlfriend. Always. And thank you again, Dr. Alan Christensen. And thank you, Dr. Rowe. See you in a little while. Bye. Are you searching the internet, Amazon, and Facebook groups looking for therapy techniques to help clients because you just weren't trained on how to do teletherapy? Then the Teletherapy Toolkit book is just what you're looking for. It's the first of its kind guide, and it's jam-packed with easy-to-use and clinically effective therapy techniques that address the most common issues that child and adolescent therapists face today. Go to teletherapytoolkitbonus.com for your free teletherapy session checklist and video made just for therapists.